Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. November 1, and it is a historic moment, not because of the election, because this is the first Keen on Sunday show with two of my uh, partners in, in the now.tv endeavor, Peniel Joseph from uh, University of California, uh, not University of California, University of Texas at Austin and Caroline uh, Heldman from Occidental. Are we, uh, are, we, uh, are we going full steam ahead, Peniel? Could you hear everything that's happening? Yes, I can. Good. So, uh, Peniel, uh, Professor Peniel Joseph from the University of Texas in Austin and Caroline Heldman, they both will have shows on now.tv launching uh, in December. But given the historic nature of our moment, it might be a good time to have a first Sunday show. The Headlines today are weird, of course, as always. Uh, according to the Washington Post, uh, Biden has a, a slight lead, very nervous for, uh, for those of us in the Biden camp. Florida, a toss-up. Uh, other, uh, other media are um, other media are more positive on the Biden front. Uh, New York Times says that Biden's leading Trump in four key states. Uh, uh, Biden has the edge, according to Politico. Uh, and uh, Biden is favored to win the election, according to 538. The job, I think, for the three of us is not to forecast the election. We're not into that thing. I just thought we might have a brief conversation about this weird moment in American history. Caroline, uh, how are you holding up in these strange times? Well, I think the rebuilding of the institution of the presidency is going to take a really long time. And so this is maybe one moment. I think people are thinking, oh, November 3rd, and then we get a chance to restore our political institutions and work on healing our democracy. I'm viewing this as being a really long term thing. And so I'm holding up just fine. I mean, I hope that we get the opportunity to start that work on November 3rd. That would be great. Uh, and uh, and Peniel, uh, what's uh, what is your uh, feeling about uh, uh, holding up in in Texas? I know you've already voted and you're very active in the Biden camp. I think all three of us are on the, in the Biden camp here. No secrets on that front. Yeah, no, I agree with Caroline. I think that um, this would be actually a landslide election if everybody who wanted to vote could actually vote. I think what's really, truly extraordinary, and I think it's going to take uh, decades uh, for our democracy to try to transform itself, is that uh, millions of people who want to vote can't vote. And even those who've already cast their ballots, uh, people of color and poor people disproportionately are going to have their mail-in ballots rejected, uh, sometimes for reasons like not uh, having a signature on it, but sometimes for just just other other reasons. So. Uh, we've got Supreme Court uh, weighing in on people trying to do curbside voting in Alabama and other places. And basically the justices that have been placed in there by uh, Trump or Republicans say no. Uh, and the ones who've been placed in there by Democratic presidents say yes. So we have major, major problems that this election has illustrated. 
I think the positive is that so many people have voted early, 90 million people, the most uh, in American history. Uh, a place like Texas, where I live, um, more people have voted this year already, even before Tuesday, uh, than voted in all of the Trump-Clinton election of 2016. So those are very heartening things, but we have to block the obstacles that so many people encounter when they're trying to vote, especially Black people and poor people and people of color. And we have to um, just institutionalize voting rights across the 50 states in the United States. Of course, I buy what you're saying, Penelope. It's, it's hard to argue with you. Um, but I'm wondering whether American democracy is in the the, the sixth state that some people say. Uh, Larry Diamond um, has a piece uh, in the New York Times this morning saying when it comes to democracy, the U.S. is showing its age. There's a lot of pieces about this. Larry's been on the show. He's a very distinguished political uh, scientist, probably the most distinguished American uh, researcher and writer on democracy. But uh, Caroline, are things really that bad? I mean, surely this election shows the vitality, the energy, um, the, the colorfulness of, of, of American democracy. I think what this election shows is an absolute desperation that I don't think folks thought it would get this bad. I think it, it so as you know, to follow up on what Peniel said, absolutely uh, voting rights when we don't have. So if you look at the pillars of democracy, um, free and fair elections is, is the key pillar. Right. And so we don't have that. We have a political party, the Republicans, um, who are uh, their, their voting strategy is to actually limit the vote. Uh, so there have been over 40 court cases that have made their way up to the Supreme Court. I haven't all been heard yet. Uh, we're anticipating many more. And, and the sole purpose is to limit the vote. And so if you don't have a free and fair election, because you're limiting the vote, if you don't have a free and fair ele electoral system, because it's being hacked uh, via you know social media uh, by uh, Iranians and, and uh, folks in the, in the Chinese government and folks in the Russian government, um, then your democracy is in peril. Uh, if you, in 2016, for example, had 21 electoral systems hacked um, by what 11 agencies said was probably Russia, and you don't do an investigation of that thoroughly, um, you don't have a free and fair election. I would add that on top of um, the fact that we have a the Supreme Court, which is no longer a constitutional body because one of the seats was taken from one party to another party. Um, and as a result of that, we now have a super majority that does not represent, is, is wildly out of step with American public opinion on basic issues like abortion, the environment, healthcare, um, go down the line. Um, so we have an, a minority rule body in the courts um, because another branch of government used partisan power in order to make that happen. Um, we also have gerrymandering uh, that we haven't talked about, which has given Republicans a disproportionate representation in Congress. So, I mean, I could go on and on. Well, in other words, Caroline, um, Larry Diamond's right and I'm wrong. In other words, American <laughs> democracy That's right. That's right, is praying at the edges and it needs to be fundamentally we're changed. We're in trouble. Yeah, uh, Peniel, in addition to the stuff about voting rights, what other aspects of um, democracy in America needs to be modernized? If uh, if if indeed Biden wins and they win, they win Congress and it becomes uh, realistic to actually fundamentally change things. Well, I think it starts with our criminal justice system. And I think we have to modernize how we invest in non-lethal first responders. There's protesting happening right now in Philadelphia after a young black man who was 
obviously mentally incapacitated, who had a knife, was shot 14 times by police. Uh, we're probably going to move uh, ideally to a system where people who are in distress are not encountered. Uh, but is that a reform of the political system, Peniel, or a reform of the criminal justice? Those are two quite different things. No, no, they're, they're converging. They're converging because our criminal justice system is is in, in, inextricably linked to our political system in multiple ways. Our criminal justice system sets up uh, structures of violence and disenfranchisement. So you think about everything from convict lease system to, to, to felons in places like Florida, even when they get their right to vote restored, you, you do a new poll tax to prevent them uh, from voting. But the first way you stop them from voting was that initial arrest, that initial racial profiling. So if you transform the criminal justice system, that is absolutely uh, linked to the political system, which is why at the grassroots level, Justice Democrats and other organizations, uh, we see Larry Krasner in Philadelphia and these progressive DAs uh, in, in St. Louis and Philadelphia and in Suffolk uh, County, uh, Massachusetts, have really pushed back against the way in which the criminal justice system not just arrests people, but really disenfranchises them uh, by by um, putting them on the way to, to felony convictions that at times in certain states can stop your voting rights in perpetuity. Um, so I'd say that that's going to be one. The other has to do with just the level of employment and benefits and health care that people get. This idea of a universal basic income, which goes back to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Poor People's Campaign in 1968. And Andy Yang got some traction talking about that in this election cycle. We have to think about how can we uh, provide income uh, to so many people who have no who have no cash and no way uh, to make a living, um, and then healthcare becomes a big part of this. I thought it was disappointing during one of the debates that Biden uh, was so proudly saying he loves private healthcare insurers, where what people need is actually uh, Medicare for all. So those are those are just a couple of the major big ticket items. Uh, that we have to we have to tackle under a Biden Harris administration if that comes to pass, but certainly criminal justice. And remember, the George Floyd protest started with uh, the criminal justice system, and they've transformed this election season. I I firmly believe that without not just the pandemic, but without the George Floyd protest, uh, President Trump would have absolutely been reelected. Um. Let's finish. I know, Peniel, you've got to go off. Let's finish with a brief note about Biden. He seems all too often to be a a, a kind of a, a footnote uh, to, to this election. Uh, people are, of course, continue to be obsessed with Trump. Finally, let's let me ask both of you. Maybe Peniel, you can start because I, mean, I know you need to go, and then uh, and then Caroline can finish the show. Uh, what happens if 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 Biden loses, particularly? within the Democratic Party. Will will there be, uh, Peniel, a, 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 a huge bloodletting? Will the left of the party, which I'm guessing you probably represent broadly, <laughs> uh, you just criticized Biden for some of his stuff in the debate. Will this be the moment where the left say, enough is enough, we're not going to do a third time. Uh, we've lost two elections. Uh, and we need uh, an AOC or someone on the left to represent the party. 
Well, yeah, I think so. But I think that the left understands that when you think about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, the two most progressive candidates, they lost. I won't say they lost fair and square because we can get into sort of the minutia of the primary process and and the way in which um, uh, candidates who aren't connected to the machine, uh, the way in which Biden was, you think about South Carolina and Biden and Jim Clyburn, are, are really a tougher, they have a tougher road to get the nomination. The only reason Obama was able to get the nomination in 2008 is that he created a parallel infrastructure that yes, got small donations, but got heavy duty major donations from Wall Street, even during the primary season and, and venture capitalists and hedge funders uh, who were dissatisfied with the Clinton uh, regime and wanted their own person in there. Uh, many of us thought uh, probably erroneously that Barack Obama, when he ran in 2008, was much further to the left than he actually was. And uh, he actually proved himself to be. So I would say when you think about AOC, when you think about Ayanna Presley, yes, I think that they are the future of the Democratic Party. But I still say you've got to win. Um, uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, their combined uh, popular votes uh, in the primaries would not have been enough to defeat Biden. So that's a problem. It means that the case that you're making is has not been cogent enough to get a majority in the primary system. So um, yes, you, you've got to move to the left of Biden, but even within the Democratic primary, you've got to have a candidate and a coalition that believes that person can win and make a convincing case to the to the American people in a general election and win. No one wants McGovern in 1972. No one wants Mondale in 1984. People want to win. They want an Obama-type coalition, but with a figure like AOC and a Green New Deal or an Ayanna Presley who's committed to social justice and economic justice, gender justice, uh, human rights for all people. Well, Peniel, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much. Uh, we will have many Sunday shows in the future. Next Sunday, Thank you. God knows what the conversation will be. You guys in particular will be too miserable to appear or, or we'll, we'll be celebrating. We'll open a bottle of champagne. So we'll see you next week, Peniel. And best Thank of luck. You, and stay safe. Caroline, uh, let's go back to what Peniel was talking about. Um, do you agree with him that... Um, the, the left on the Democratic Party shouldn't be too bitter because they essentially didn't have the votes to win the nomination and they simply have to come to terms with that? Yes, and I, I approach it from a, a perhaps slightly different perspective that I'm further to the left than any party will ever be. Uh, but <laughs> I am, uh, I'm, I, I feel calm when moderates make it to the final stage, because electoral politics is not about being radical. If you look at how the framers set up our government, they actually set it up to be very incremental, which by definition means that you choose folks in the middle. And then from there, social movements press for change. And I would argue, you know, Congress, you, you get a, a radical or more radical contingent in Congress, and then they push for policies that maybe they can convince the mainstream of the party to endorse. And that's the way change comes about. So I view the presidents as like, you know, I, I say Donald Trump to my students, I say, don't expect much. It's like you're in a house, you want to get up to the roof, 
Donald Trump is down in the basement when it comes to social justice. Joe Biden's on the second floor, but he's not on the roof. You get to the roof a lot of different ways. You get to the roof through, you know, social justice movements, uh, through through more radical legislation in Congress. But I think this idea, I think the the kind of uh, Bernie Sanders contingent, especially being disaffected during the elections, both last election and this election, has more to do with the fact that they, a lot of them don't quite understand the place of electoral politics. So I hope that the left never puts up a super radical candidate because they won't be elected. They will lose the general election. And finally, uh, Caroline, um, what are you going to do on Tuesday? Where are you going to watch it? And uh, what will you do if, if Trump wins? Well, I, hope, uh, I hope you won't go to jail for too long because we need you for now TV. <laughs> well, I so I I'm doing media coverage all day, and uh, I you know as a someone who studies women in the presidency and those at twelve women have made serious bids prior to Hillary Clinton, I um, was a little more uh, you know realistic going into it. I knew there was a strong possibility actually uh, that polls weren't accounting for a gender bias. Um, against a female president. And indeed, if you look at what went wrong with the polling in 2016, it wasn't that they got the numbers wrong in terms of, of output. It was that they got the turnout numbers wrong. And that had a lot to do with gender if you looked at, at who the melt was amongst. So this is a long way of saying um, I'm, I'm prepared. Um, you know, the pandemic in some ways, too, I think has prepared a lot of us to just accept some very bad situations. I think it's bad, not from a partisan perspective. I love a lot of Republicans. Um, I think it is uh, bad from a democracy and constitution perspective. So um, I'm working on my poker face um, if that moment happens. Because and finally, uh, finally, Catherine, uh, uh, Caroline, can we uh, can we say for sure that there won't be a female president in 2020? Uh, in in 2020. So no, I actually think that Biden's found this backdoor way. I mean, Biden could basically die in the next That's two right. days, and then Kamala would be president if he wins. Well, I would anticipate he might step aside if he gets elected in the next couple of, of years. Um, I think he's found a backdoor way to give us our first woman president. And uh, she's likely to be a black woman and a Tamil Indian woman, which is pretty incredible if you look at 240 years of being excluded from that office. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.